Welcome to Humans in Public Health. I'm Megan Hall. In the past few years, the field of public health has become more visible than ever before, but it's always played a crucial role in our daily lives. Each month, we talk to a person who makes this work possible. Today, Professor Omar Galarraga. We've come a long way when it comes to treating HIV. There are effective medications to slow down and prevent the spread of the virus. And in general, it's easy to get tested. But despite all of these resources, about one in four people with HIV aren't getting the care they need. Professor Omar Galarraga says small incentives can help. His research shows that everything from cash to coupons to a simple redesign of a form can make HIV treatment and prevention more accessible. Professor Omar Galarraga, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Megan, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Most of your research looks at how to use incentives to encourage people to either get treated or tested for HIV, but it's part of a bigger field, which is called behavioral economics. Do you mind explaining just generally what that is? Sure. Behavioral economics is basically the marriage of psychology and economics. It's a field that has been around for over 50 years at this point. Research that was done in the early 70s by two very famous people, Kahneman and Tversky. And basically, they demonstrated that we humans are are not robots, right? That we cannot have in our brain all the information that we need to make every decision and that we cannot do all the calculus that we would need to do to make, you know, the most rational, perfect decision. That we, as humans, make shortcuts and that we rely on on those shortcuts to make many decisions. So it's kind of acknowledging that economics is describing people in a perfect environment with all the information, but no one really makes decisions that way. That's right. That is very, very difficult for every decision to be perfect in the economic sense, to be quote-unquote rational. So how do we use behavioral economics to encourage someone to get tested for HIV or do something else that prevents the spread of the virus? Right. So the behavioral economics interventions have become very powerful because they use these uh, deviations that we have from perfect behavior in favor of, of prevention and treatment. So one very good example is opt out, right? So for whatever reasons, many of us may be reluctant to take an HIV test because of a stigma or because of fear of needles or because of many other reasons. Yet, of course, it's, you know, it's just a small prick in the finger and it passes very quickly and there's nothing to be afraid of. And and it's very good knowledge to have for for oneself and for for one's uh, sexual partners. And so opt out has been very, very good, meaning that people will say, you know, uh, we will do an HIV test on you unless you actively opt out. Omar says that testing patients for HIV by default when they go to the doctor has dramatically increased the percentage of people who get tested. In Botswana, this simple change helped it become one of the first countries to reach the UN's 95, 95, 95 targets on AIDS prevention. Those 95s represent percentages. So 95% of the people who have HIV have been tested for the virus. Out of those, 95% are receiving treatment. And in 95% of the people receiving treatment, the virus is so low in their system that they're not transmitting the virus onto sex partners. And you think something as simple as 
opting out instead of opting in to an HIV test made that possible? Right. That's the amazing thing with some of these interventions. It seems so simple and they are, you know, low cost or zero cost. But again, it's just uh, we humans are, as I said, not perfect. And the way that you pose, in this case, the test and the way you ask, it's, it's, it's very, very important. That's interesting because when I heard of behavioral economics, my first thought was we're paying people money. But you're saying it doesn't necessarily mean that you're incentivizing people with cash or coupons. It could be just improving the user experience. That's right. That's right. That That's the most powerful applications are either no incentives at all or very small incentives. A lot of the, the most recent applications in HIV are these applications where they, they are called nudges, right? A nudge is obviously something that usually does not involve a financial incentive that involves a change in the what is called the choice architecture. So that's the environment in which, you know, a person makes decisions about HIV prevention and treatment. And really small changes can have big impacts. But sometimes those small changes do involve money or vouchers to encourage behavior. Omar was working in Mexico in 2006 when he first saw one of these programs in action. I had heard about the Progresa Oportunidades program. That's perhaps the most famous or the first big conditional cash transfer program, which was, you know, paying families to keep school-aged children in school and paying families to uh, take their uh, children to, you know, checkups and, and welfare visits. The program was really successful. It increased education levels, improved health outcomes for children, and helped reduce rural poverty in Mexico. Omar was impressed, so we decided to try something similar to encourage HIV prevention. Mexico had done it for the population at large, but nobody had done it with particular groups that were at, at high risk of acquiring HIV. So we interviewed over uh, 1,600 men who had sex with men, and we, we went to the gay bars and, and then interviewed people while they're, you know, we're waiting to come in. Young people sometimes, uh, you know, they, they were there before the doors were open, so they're like, sure, I'll take 20 minutes uh, survey. And, and they told us about, you know, how they would be interested. And yeah, sure, I'll come to the clinic every three months. So yeah, sure, I'll come to the clinic every month to be tested. If I get $15? Right, exactly. If I get five bucks, 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks. And, and with that, we, we determine, you know, the optimal incentive. So for the original research, it was they had to come to the clinic and get a STI test. And if they were clean, they got the incentive? That's right. That's right. So it incentivized them to be having safe sex. Exactly. However, and this is part of what how I got interested in this, one of the first things that, that we documented working with the groups at highest risk, which are the, the men who are engaged in commercial sex work, is that there is a risk premium, meaning that condomless sex is paid about 30% higher right? So there's about a 30% premium on condomless sex. So if from the public health point of view, we said, well, you have to reduce the number of partners or you have to use condoms 100% of the times, that has an economic implication for the sex worker. And that's behavioral economics too, right? That's right. And that's why we felt like they need to be compensated to reduce the risk because they're reducing the risk for themselves, but they're also reducing the risk for society as a whole. Omar's interventions have evolved over time, in part to keep up with new treatment options. 
In Mexico, for example, we just finished a program with incentives for men at very, very high risk of HIV, men who are engaged in commercial sex work, and we basically pay them between $10 and $15 every three months for them to adhere to the PrEP, which is a pill that you take every day to avoid getting HIV infection. And, you know, we have preliminary results that suggest that, you know, adherence increase. And how do you have the participants prove that they were taking PrEP to get their financial incentive? Because you're not watching them every day, right? That's right. That's right. In this case, if I take an antiretroviral every day, the antiretroviral starts accumulating in my hair. So from the participants, we take uh, about uh, 150 strands of hair, and that gets analyzed. And then we can tell whether they've been taking, you know, five, six, or seven pills in the last week, three or four pills in the last week, or two or fewer pills in the last week. What about long-term behavior change? I mean, it's one thing to have an intervention that's a year long that pays people to come in every few months. It's another thing to make sure they're taking PrEP for the rest of their lives. Right. So the idea here is to start with incentives, but we couple them with other cues. So there is research, for example, that if I start taking a pill every day, but that then I initially may get paid for it, a little money. Again, we're not talking, you know, undue influence, right? We're just talking small notch. Again, we're talking, you know, a dollar. And so if I couple the behavior taking with, with something else that I'm doing, right? With, I don't know, brushing teeth or, or setting the alarm clock or something else. Then that cue gets reinforced and eventually you may be able to remove the incentive and just the cue, the brushing of the teeth or the setting the alarm or any other cue that you've put uh, gets in place. And then the, the short-term behavior can become a, a longer term, right? If, if all you need is a small nudge because you already have the, the, the intrinsic motivation. So it's sort of like you're providing rewards or nudges in the beginning to get them to establish a habit. And then once the habit is formed, you can kind of remove those rewards. That's right. That's right. And, and that's why exactly some colleagues call this habit. There is, however, one thing that we have to take into account, you know, why is it that I'm not taking the pill? Omar says there is a limit to what behavioral economics can do. Sometimes it's not possible to maintain the habit once the temporary payments end, especially when structural forces like poverty stand in your way. Take, for example, getting to the clinic to pick up pills. If I don't get that incentive to be able to afford the bus ticket, then this is not going to make me any good, even though I have the internal motivation to take the pill. And so we have to be careful with that because sometimes I feel like we ask these economic-based interventions too much. You know, I, I think it depends on why is it, you know, what's the bottleneck? Why is it that I'm not taking the pill every day? And we have to be careful on that. But Omar says there's still a lot that behavioral economics can do. He and his colleagues are pushing more countries to use those strategies, especially when it comes to HIV prevention. I think having larger programs at the national level that are well thought out and that are rigorously evaluated, um, it, it's, it's our goal. And that, um, you know, the, the small pilots that we've worked on, how can we bring them to scale and how can we do them at the national level so that more people can have a healthier and productive lives. Omar says, we already know these programs are effective and relatively inexpensive. Now all that's left is putting them to use. Omar Galarga is an associate professor of health services policy and practice at the Brown University School of Public Health. 
Humans in Public Health is a monthly podcast brought to you by Brown University School of Public Health. This episode was produced by Nat Hardy and recorded at the podcast studio at CIC Providence. I'm Megan Hall. Talk to you next month.